Hi, this is Saya and this is the Hearsay podcast. My guest this week is Benjamin Law, my first non-musician guest. Uh, As you may know, Ben is a writer. He contributes to many, many magazines and newspapers, including Good Weekend and Frankie. He has written two of his own books and has developed one, his memoir, The Family Law, into a television series for SBS. You've probably seen him on Q&A, The Book Club on the ABC or countless other television shows. Uh, As you may have guessed, he's a very, very busy man, so I'm so grateful that he took the time to talk to me. Um, This week, Ben's story is illustrated by Hannah Crofts. Hannah is a lovely artist and just a lovely human being, really. She plays in the amazing group All Our Exes Live in Texas, and you can find more of her work by searching out her band. I highly recommend it. Their harmonies are absolutely to die for. Uh, I don't normally do this, but I feel I probably should eventually, and especially for this one. If you don't like swearing or talk about gross stuff, maybe this isn't the podcast for you. So uh, this one has some bad language and some pretty gross and rude content. You have been warned. Uh, (laughs) The rest of you enjoy the podcast. Hearsay episode number eight, Benjamin Law. I'm still dealing with this, like... Oh, no, you've got a gremlin. I've had it for six weeks. Is it is it a cough or...? I had bronchitis oh, twice in bron- a row. You have bronchitis. Fuck, I've had that once. It's awful, you poor thing. Yeah, it's really fucked. Anyway, I'll try and get through it without being, like, too Shirley Bassey. <laughs> Word is a boat. Um, <laughs> yeah, look, if I, if I... You're talking to a Chinese person. I'm used to spitting in my life, so... <laughs> If you need to just hock a bit of, um, hock a little lurgy out, that won't offend me at all. I've spent, I've spent quite a bit of time on the mainland. <laughs> Although Hong Kong Chinese people really look down on it. We're just like, you disgusting yeah. people. <laughs> it's so racist. I actually think that I found that the hardest thing to deal with when I was in China. Oh, yeah. The constant spitting oh my God. was really confronting. Go to Hong Kong and if you see any spitting there, they're not ours. <laughs> <laughs> There's so much intra-Chinese racism, but it's just like, oh, my God, there's so much spitting. Like, oh. I know. Anyway. But then Hong Kong has, like, the wet markets and stuff, yeah. um, and that is really confronting as well. Yeah. You know, um, the thing that I thought was hilarious when I was in China for several months was, you know, I'm, I, I swim a lot, so yeah. their, their pools at the end of every lane is a metal spittoon bucket for you to hock up oh, your guts no. after doing a lap. And no. then the poor staff have to, like, <laughs> tip it out like a fucking, I don't know, potty or something. It's so it's so rank. And then even if you were inclined to spit in it, you just know it's like the congealed gollies of no. every other person from that day. It's that so just disgusting. Made my, that made my gag reflex really react. <laughs> yeah, so sexy, right? Ew. So, but that conglomerate of someone else's spit, doesn't that just make you want to spew in that bucket? That's used as lube later. 
<laughs> no, it's so it's so intense. But you know, the, the whole idea is better out than in, right? Yeah, true. Yeah, and yeah, better. You mean better out of the pool? Yeah, that's well. that's true as well. That's true too. Out of the pool, out of your body. Anyway, what a beautiful way to start your podcast. I don't even know if this it's is going like to make really... it. <laughs> I'm going to leave it in. <laughs> and now, because you've got bronchitis as well, you you're going to feel triggered. And you're going to feel yeah. like you need to hock up throughout the project. It's, got, it's, got, it's a beautiful way to start and, and continue. <laughs> Look, I've taken three, three things of antibiotics and I think I'm over it. I think I killed it. You know, the thing about antibiotics is because it destroys all your gut flora as well. Like, yeah. you know how like in the last five years, everyone's like your gut flora is so um, important. And the thing about antibiotics yeah. is like it'll cure you, but it'll kind of make you shit yourself as well. So what you yeah, need to yeah. start doing, do you say, is um, miso soup, a lot of that good bacteria in miso soup, yogurt, yep. um, probiotics, like Inalive. I went to see a naturopath and she gave me all this, like a big list of things to take to make my gut flora okay. But it's been difficult because I think a lot of that stuff needs to be refrigerated and I've been on tour. So oh, right. Now, now that I'm back, um, I'm getting into it. Yeah. But, um, but I've had to take sort of like other, other things like yogurt. Yeah, yeah. Um, and also, you know, to like stop yourself from getting thrush. Just smear that Greek yogurt all over. <laughs> Someone said to me that you, you should um, dunk a tampon in yogurt and oh, stick that yeah, up yeah, yourself. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've heard that as well. I haven't That's tried fucked. it myself with my vagina, but I have, <laughs> I have heard that that is extremely good. And I imagine, like, if you have thrush as well, like, yeah, yogurt it would from be the soothing. fridge, it'd be so soothing. Yeah. And also, someone else told me that you can dilute some vinegar and sit in a bucket of vinegar. Oh, <laughs> like, that, that sounds no more fucking intense. way I'm doing that. No, maybe you could get a dildo, put it, <laughs> put it in some Yakult or something, <laughs> some Yoplait. Actually, no, because if the yogurt has sugar, then you're going to really fuck yourself up. Yeah, that's true. Sugar feeds, it feeds the thrush, yeah, doesn't it? you don't it? want to make sourdough down there. Ugh. Um, <laughs> okay. All right. On to more serious topics. Um, <laughs> Thrush is serious, Saya. It is serious. You should do a whole podcast about vaginal health. Yeah, I think I will. Get your mum on. Yep. Chill out. She knows quite a bit. <laughs> I think that's one of the first things I ever heard your mum say uh, was at your book launch uh, for the family law, I asked a question, do you have any advice for women? And she said, make sure you wash every layer of your vagina. <laughs> mm, yeah. Although I heard like nowadays it's like your vag is quite self-regulating and washing it too much is bad. And definitely don't yeah. and definitely don't wash it with soap. Because yeah, soap exactly. is really, really nasty for your vag. Yeah, I think that really fucks your pH levels. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, oh, anyway. Well. <laughs> so nice to hear your voice, Ben. I feel like it's been far too long. It has been too long. The last time we saw each other was at a wedding. I know. And I got a bit drunk and I forgot how to play the song I was meant to play at the wedding. Oh, no. <laughs> I was there. You were you were perfect. You're too drunk to remember even how it went. <laughs> it was good just to get everyone to sing along. I think that was my method of going, I think, I think I'll be all right if everyone else knows it. <laughs> That's such a that's such an Adele move. You're basically Adele. I'm basically Adele. It's true. 
Um, so I, I sort of wanted to... You're the first person that I've talked to that isn't a musician. And thank you so much for taking the time. I know you're super-duper busy all the time. Oh, everyone's super-duper busy, though. Yeah, but you in particular. I feel like every time I see you, you're on double deadline. Oh, uh, yeah, but <laughs> double double deadline's okay because, you know, I've got two holes. It's triple when, you know, you've run out of orifices to fuck. That's when you're in trouble. <laughs> double Double's totally doable. What are you working on at the moment? Okay, so um, we are wrapping up on Family Law Series 2, so a show that a bunch of us have made for SBS that was based on a memoir that I wrote. Series 1 Brilliant. came out January 2016. It's now yep. um, early 2017 when I'm talking to you, so um, we're doing the final edits and we're currently working on what they call ADRs, which is additional dialogue recording, so stuff that, you know... Um, performances or vocal performances that just need to be re-recorded or new lines that need to be written to kind of make the story stronger or whatever. We're doing all that yep. at the moment. So that's pretty much the the last lap of the race, really. Um, and wow. then we've just started, we've started brainstorming about the next series, which is something that, um, you know, you, there's n there are never any guarantees in television, but we kind of already know what we want that next series to be so they're pretty good strong stories and then I'm working the other thing is that I'm working on another project that will be for a commercial tv station it's not my project Whoa. it's someone else's project that I've been asked to um, help out with and it's really exciting and um, made that by very exciting. cool people um, whose work right. I don't know how much I can say about it but it, but Look, if you see a show on TV next year that's very female-led and awesome, um, that's probably the show that, I, that I'm working on at the moment. That sounds amazing. Yeah, I can't wait. Yeah, I'll see if I can get a thrush storyline in there. <laughs> Still unsure if I'm going to cut that bit out. I'll have to see how I feel tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> I'll probably leave it in. Yeah, just leave um, it in. So, Ben, I... I sort of I'm I guess for me I um I've known you a really long time and I've seen you develop into this beautiful writer and like quite a amazing public figure who stands for what I believe in and I think what a lot of young people believe in. I think it's it's so lovely to see someone who I love so much do so well and do so many things on TV and um can you so can you tell me how it all started? Did you um did you always know that you wanted to be a writer? No, I wish I had a cleaner narrative about this because when I was growing up, I did have dreams and my dream was to be an actor on Home and Away by the age of like 16 <laughs> or something. Like I really, really loved Home and Away for some reason and I was obsessed with becoming a child star because that always works out so well. Um, <laughs> and I don't think it ever really registered that, I, one, I wasn't that good an actor because I do all these after-school classes as well, that I was Asian and that wasn't really a big thing on Australian screens. And third, like, my face was just, like, covered in acne and orthodontics <laughs> as well. So that dream was never going to work out. <laughs> but while all that was happening, I was, I was always a big reader. I was never a big writer. I did well at English um, at, at school, but I was never one of those genius students, like you know, top 10, but not top five or anything like that. Yeah. And I just really liked reading. So as a kid, um, 
you know, read a lot of Roald Dahl and Paul Jennings and all that stuff that other kids are reading at that age. And my mum yeah. just knew that I was pretty low maintenance. She could just throw a book in a corner and I'd be quiet for the next few hours like a dog. And, um, <laughs> and then in high school, I don't know, I, got kind of, I, I kind of look back and young adult fiction, you know, what's called YA fiction now, wasn't, I don't yeah. think, as strong as it is now when I was a teenager. And so I stopped reading books. I wasn't a strong reader when I was a teenager, but I was a really strong reader of magazines and probably like you say, as well, just became super obsessed with music. Um, yeah. Just, you know, I was listening to like a lot of PJ Harvey and Björk and Tori Amos and yeah. just becoming really obsessed. So I'd read Rolling Stone and Juice, which was a magazine, yeah. an Australian I music magazine. Juice. I love Juice. Yeah. Um, was reading a lot of Q from the UK, reading a lot of, yeah. um, you know, even stuff like Mojo and Spin. Um, but also also because I was just lurking in the news agencies constantly, uh, that was kind of my happy place, the news agency and the... Me too. In- yeah. I totally I relate to it. that. Yeah. Because I was obsessed with Britpop. Yeah. See, like that stuff. And, and the, British, the British magazines that were coming out as well, which is so yeah. good. Like even the ones that weren't purely about music, like The Face. Um, yeah, I remember that. The Face and Q and I was really into Select magazine. Oh, I missed the boat on that one. Oh, it was mostly Britpop stuff, I think. Mm. Um, and I was like obsessed with Graham Coxon from Blur. So I used to just like try yeah. and <laughs> leaf through it to see if there were any pictures of I, him. I was it. obsessed with Alex from Blur because I just thought he oh, was yeah. so handsome and had Alex he James. He is really handsome. And he had such beautiful hair. I mean, he's still handsome and has beautiful yeah. hair, but I just thought he was the most sexy thing I'd ever seen. Yeah. Uh, he's very feminine too, Alex. Yeah, just really good cheekbones and everything. Yeah. I think I liked Graham because he seemed really like introverted and mysterious. Yeah, I just cared <laughs> about looks and hair. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, don't, I don't care about anything else. And just, you know, getting into like Radiohead and all that sort of stuff, that, that kind of period in your life where music, you become obsessed with music because everything about life feels so dramatic and it's so, yeah. like my theory about why all teenagers get so music obsessed is you kind of need a soundtrack to articulate feelings that you don't yet have the vocabulary to articulate, you know? Totally. And um, so for me, uh, the great thing about reading a lot of music magazines is that they're a gateway to reading really good journalism. So Rolling Stone yeah. would run and still runs great political journalism or journalism about social issues. The Face did some yeah. really amazing writing. Even the way that Rolling Stone would construct its um, profiles of people, I just thought, wow, that's a really incredible portrait of an artist. And, you know, I grew up in, in the suburbs of coastal Queensland pre-internet as well. Like dial-up was just becoming a thing as I was leaving high school. So my only connection to the world is through television or through you know, magazines or whatever. And so it was a really powerful thing to kind of be lying in my bedroom in the suburbs and having access to the rest of the world um, through, yeah. through words. And so I think that was the main appeal for writing for me. So then I studied writing at university. And you studied r- journalism at uni, didn't you? Well, no, look, maybe I should have. The funny thing is, <laughs> the funny thing is like when, when I was looking at all my... Um, 
my options for university because I, you know, I even auditioned for acting school and I got through the next round and then I think they realised that I wasn't very good and then I didn't get through the next round after that. Um, <laughs> and so I thought about it and I'm like, well, I do like reading a lot. Maybe it'd be cool to try being a writer, but journalism felt like too... You know, I, 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 I really loved reading and listening to the daily news, but I wasn't particularly interested in making the daily news. It was kind of like, and this happened, and this happened, and this happened. There wasn't, there's no storytelling in, involved in that necessarily. And creative yeah. writing degrees had just started at, um, at QUT, the tech university in Brisbane, and one of my friends had just gotten into it. And so I enrolled in that and got in. And it was a really tight cohort, like of just 20 people. Um, oh, and wow. they borrowed a lot of journalism subjects because the course was still so new that there weren't enough units that had even been created for creative writing alone. And that was perfect for me because what I wanted to do was, was nonfiction narrative journalism and storytelling so yeah. I got all that kind of discipline of journalism with the craft of creative writing and fiction writing and that was a really right. good good training ground for me and then what were the first kind of jobs you were getting um look like I was working those kind of classic jobs just to earn money like working at a news agency for a while um and then Actually, I started writing for the Student Union magazine um, back when oh, yeah. they still existed. I know that they still do exist, but, you know, I, w I was at university in the days of mandatory student unions and so yeah. student magazines were quite robust. Um, and so then I became the editor of the student magazine and that was a paying job. Um, I worked in a bookstore at the same time, which sounds just like a retail job, but that was a really good education for writing as well. And then yeah. I was a university tutor. And then in terms of the, the kind of paid writing work that I got, I still remember my first street press gig was doing a review of a gig at The Healer. Um, fellow Brisbaneite sayer would know <laughs> the venue I'm talking yeah. about. for Ra a great venue. Yeah, for Rave magazine. And then, um, but when I was... What review? What, what are you reviewing? Uh, uh, a band called Charles Foster Kane. And it yeah. was like I imbued so much kind of literary flourishes into, you know, three, <laughs> 300 words. I think I, I think I went a little bit overboard. But, um, but that was a, a really huge thrill to g see your name in print for the very first time. And there was this other stuff going on. Like there was a website called Vibewire that would do – that would – print stuff you know voiceworks magazine that came out of melbourne was a huge thing for me as well because it connected me with a lot of my friends in the writing scene who i still am really close to now um yeah, yeah it was just putting out those those feelers and then soon enough there was a new magazine that started called frankie magazine and i started yep. writing for them and it went on and on and on i remember when you started writing for frankie magazine because that was a magazine that i really loved to mm. read and um, and I was so excited to see your name in it. Um, and I always loved your articles the best, of course. <laughs> oh, thanks, Saya. You've been very nice to me. You'll have to be mean to me at some stage in the podcast as well. <laughs> I couldn't possibly. Um, so you, you just mentioned uh, the writing scene. And I guess it's something that I imagine is a little bit like the music scene in Australia where everybody is quite... Uh, supportive of one another and everybody knows each other. Is that right? Is, is that what happens in writing? Um, yeah, I think it's pretty collegiate. I think it changes from city to city. Um, 
it's it's odd, you know. I'm currently based in Sydney and I have been here for the last three years, but I still very much think of myself as a Queenslander who happens to live in Sydney. And I think what was really great about starting off as a writer in Brisbane is that it's such a great incubator. Um, I was talking to a friend yesterday who's a writer who's always been based in Sydney and she recently travelled to Brooklyn and she thought, wow, Brooklyn's just a hub. You know, America must be a scene that's just so much more supportive of its writers. It takes writing seriously. We can talk to people much more easier. And I think, and I, and I speculated with her that I don't think it was a country divide like America versus uh, Australia. I think it was more a city divide, actually. Sydney's really hard to live in. It's really expensive. It's one of the most expensive cities in the world. And that when, when you're making sure that you can survive, you don't have much time to reflect or necessarily pursue your passions as much as you would in a place like Brisbane. And Brisbane's always had like an yeah. incredibly tight-knit writing scene. Um, when you go to events at Avid Reader and Riverbend Books... Um, and the Brisbane Writers' Festival, you see people like, the, you know, some of the greatest writers in Australia, like John Birmingham and Chris Olsen and Chrissy Neen and, um, you know, these people are just available, just happy to talk to you and kind of yeah. see you as their peer. Matthew Condon was my mentor for a while and the fact that he was just there and willing to talk to a schmuck um, is, is incredible. You know, I think that those kind of relationships are harder to foster in bigger cities. Um, so I think that that really helped. And when you talk about the that kind of community, what's great about being a writer in a place like Brisbane is um, you don't really see each other as competition because you aren't really. It's a smaller city, yeah. you know, it's robust and there are a lot of writers, but the horror writers are friends with the journalists who are friends with the yeah. poets who are friends with the playwrights because you share enough in common, the same values that writers have um, and the dedication to your craft, but you're not, you're not competition at all. So you're really always hand in hand. You can't really afford to be competitive um, in, in the yeah. Australian writing scene and especially the Brisbane writing scene. I think I've always felt like that about music too. I think it's, it's too... too smaller pond to be competitive I think as soon yep. as you start being competitive or start being nasty everyone knows about it and and it's you know it's not a good scene yeah and I think people are just slightly allergic to it as well it, it's not yeah. like offensive it's kind of more baffling like oh yeah really that's, yeah that's why, kind of why odd. would you do that yeah, yeah. <laughs> so do you think that um that being somewhere like Sydney now and with the knowledge that you have that people aren't as accessible in Sydney, do you feel like you make more of an effort to be accessible to people? Um, yeah, I'd hope so. Um, I, I know that writing's not easy and I think, um, you know, in my career a few factors have played into making my career work and one is luck like just simply being in the right place at the right time or writing the certain things that people want to be reading about. Um, and the second thing is people, people who have my back, writers who are better than me, writers who are older than me, writers who are more experienced than me, giving me advice and encouraging me or creating or opening opportunities up for me as well. Yeah. Those things are incredibly important, as I imagine they are in music too, that people oh, absolutely, yeah. it's 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 a very difficult gamble to go about doing on your own um 
you know, writer, I think writers have that thing where we're lucky in some ways because we're a resource, uh, we're not a really resource-intensive kind of practice. You know, unlike musicians, yeah. we don't need to carry much equipment around whatsoever. <laughs> I've always felt really lucky about that. But the thing that writers kind of have at their disadvantage is it's a, by default, really solitary, isolating uh, pursuit. Um, and you need people to have your back. I mean, people often say you can do whatever you can do in the arts as long as you work hard. And I think that's, that's true to an extent. Like hard work is a prerequisite of yeah. making a sustainable career in the arts. Like you really need to work freaking hard after hours, unpaid labour to make sure sometimes that the work exists. But that's not a guarantee of success. And I think the other thing is, is people. So I would hope that, you know, I'm always sharing opportunities with friends, telling them about competitions or editors to um, pitch to, editors to avoid. Um, you know, that, that sharing of knowledge is deeply, deeply important. And I think if you're a bit protective or if you keep all of your resources, you know, if you hoard them away just yourself, um, that doesn't really work in your favour in the long run either. Yeah. Oh, that's really lovely to hear. And I, that's just what I imagined you would do, you know, I think, because you're such a kind-hearted person, I feel like you'd be very helpful. Oh, thanks, Saya. It's so nice of you to say all this because, like, you know very well that I'm an awful human being in some respects. So <laughs> it's just great that now the audience has this completely other lovely, <laughs> lovely impression of me. I appreciate that. <coughs> oh, no. Ben, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Laughing brings it on, which is um, which is a real shit. Cause I um, as you know, I laugh a lot. Yeah, you, um, yeah, but that's because more than most, you're you're around funny people, and you're also very funny yourself. So you know, <laughs> you want you'd want to be one of those people who laugh more than those people who don't really laugh much at all. That's true. I do. I kind of thought I just need to hang out with more dead shits when I'm sick. Totally. I can't. <laughs> I can't laugh. It brings on the coughs. <laughs> anyway, um, I so I wanted to ask you. Um, at what time did you did you think? Okay, I'm a writer, and that's all I'm gonna do. Um. Well, look. I think even when I started writing, that was kind of the end goal, and it never actually seems possible to be honest. Um. I, I think when you when you graduate from a, a course like creative writing, if you graduate from any course with the word creative in its title, there is not the assumption, like you know, you don't you don't study dentistry and become a dentist full time. You know, it's not like you've yeah. studied, um, you know, any of those kind of technical courses where the the qualification is a guarantee of of the work. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so you really need to hustle and especially when you start out, the pay is not good. You are just so grateful that there's any pay whatsoever that you're willing yeah. to do the work for better or for worse. And, um, and so it was always the goal from day one. And for me, it was a really slow build. Like I know for someone like John Birmingham, for instance, he decided at a young age, I'm going to become a writer this year. And he didn't do any work except writing and he was I think he was like eating rice a lot that year and yeah. probably going out of his mind um and not having a great lifestyle but by the end of the year yeah. he had pitched and had written for enough magazines that yeah he was a full-time writer and for me it was a much more kind of gradual process but it was always always the goal and I 
still think of how lucky I am that I do do it full time for a living now because, um, you know, I, th- I think there, were, there was a long period where I always just assumed that part time work, doing other stuff was always going to be necessary to sustain the career that I've got. Um, so yeah. what does hustling look like in the writing world? Well, um, you're on the streets with your cock out. No, uh, <laughs> um, it's, a, it's a lot of pitching. Uh, so, you know, when, you, when you're a freelance writer and you want to write for magazines, and that was the main way that I wanted to make my living. I just, I just loved magazines so much. Um, yeah. You have to pitch to editors and you have to give them ideas. And every time you make a pitch, you are essentially a stranger coming off the streets, approaching another stranger and saying to them, give me a job. And it's just as confronting and just as difficult as that sounds. And over the years I've perfected how to do that. It's an act of reassurance. You have to put yourself in an editor's shoes. Like how how would you want to be reassured that this stranger that you have never met in your life can do a job for you uh, that that your job relies on. You know, if they don't provide the goods, you're screwed over and your life is about to be difficult. And so yeah. I always saw my pictures as, one, just generating a lot of ideas I thought would be great for the magazine and, two, making the editor's life as easy as possible because they're, under, yeah. they're in this high-stress environment. And I think in those early days when I worked in street press and seeing how intense an editor's job was, um, being friends with people like Lou Bannister and um, who founded Frankie Magazine and then being, and also yeah. being friends with Joe Walker, who was then the editor of Frankie Magazine for a long time, seeing how intense their jobs was made me realise what being a good contributor and a good pitcher looked like. I think a lot of people... Um, you know, when they're pitching stories or when they're freelance writers, they see the editor as kind of this mean gatekeeper who is not their friend. Yeah. And it's like, no, it's about, it's a, it's a two-way street. You have to kind of extend respect both, both ways and understand what they, what they need to do their job properly too. And, you, and I guess there's a lot of bravery putting yourself out there to, trying to say, look, I, I can do this. I mean, you're right, but luckily for me, I'm really arrogant. And so, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you do need a bit of chutzpah. And um, self-belief. But the other thing as well that you need is you need to pitch so many times because rejection is just a part of the process. Like I've always thought that a writer's pitches are similar to an actor auditioning. You know, my friends who are professional actors, the number of auditions that they go through, they'll probably get, you know, one in 25, one in 30, one in 50 uh, of those auditions. That's why you have to go through so many auditions. And now having worked in television now, I, I understand that you getting an audition is not even necessarily about you being a good actor. Sometimes it's your look. Sometimes it's just someone else has the right face. Someone else has the right intonations or bring yeah, something unexpected. Right. Like it's got, no, it's got, often it's got so little to do with you. And if you're a freelance writer pitching, sometimes the pitches are actually really good, but they're not right for the magazine because maybe they're thinking about yeah. their winter issues and you don't, you don't know that and you've pitched something for a summer story. You've just got to pitch so much that yeah. the maths works out. How do you formulate a pitch? Um, well, it's kind of knowing the magazine inside out. So, again, putting the editor's hat on and thinking, what do they want from a pitch? How much do you have to put in there? Uh, a pitch is about a paragraph 
Um, oh, okay. This is this is the story I want to write. It'd be sim- um, these are the people I'd interview. This is why the story is important, um, and it's similar to these other stories that you've published in the magazine. So immediately, um, you're telling them that you know their magazine inside out. That yeah. It's right for Frankie magazine and not for Yen magazine. You need to kind of know why that why before you start. How much time do you spend thinking of stories? Is that just a, like what you do every day without really realizing it? A bit like songwriting. Yeah, I'm a pretty I'm a pretty head up in the clouds kind of guy. Often I think like I'm constantly daydreaming, or if some conversations you know leave me thinking, wow, that is insane, or that's incredible. Um, so I've probably got, you know, whether it's feature articles or ideas for episodes of a TV show or, or maybe a play that I want to write because that's probably something that I want to try my hand at at some stage as well. Great. You know, I'm constantly thinking. I, I, think, I think the problem for most writers is that they have far too many stories to tell and they'll never have enough yeah. time in their lifetime to, to, to write them or focus on them. Yeah. You know, when you hear a news story... And you think, wow, that is insane. But that person that was interviewed for five seconds, like they've got a whole backstory that I so want to know about. Like what is the human story yeah. there? Like I just love knowing that, um, you know, that everyone that you cross paths with in the street probably has like this incredibly belief-defying kind of uh, story that you'll never have access to. That kind of blows yeah. my mind. Do you think you'll ever go as far as writing a biography? Um, like someone else's biography? Yeah. Um, oh, look, yeah, maybe if they're interesting enough. I, I mean, I just, I just recently read, um, I've been reading Julia Baird's biography of Queen Victoria, which is not something <laughs> I would ever, I'm, I'm judging a literary prize and also Julia Baird's like a, a mate of mine. So I was just like, oh, I guess I'll read a bit biography of Queen Victoria and it's it's a total ripper oh, the research that would have to go into that yeah exactly um and I just think that that's kind of incredible I mean obviously about a well-known figure um but I think look it's it's not in my it's not in my kind of radar at the moment I love reading biographies yeah. but I mean if I find the right subjects sure but I just, I mean, when you're talking about this stuff, I was just reminded of this great quote. It, it's in an epigraph of a book that I really love called Let the Great World Spin. Um, and it has this epigraph, you know, the thing that starts off a novel, a quote from someone else yeah. uh, that says, all the lives we could live, all the people we will never know, never will be, they are everywhere. That is what the world is. You know, and that's, that's, that, that's that is what the world is. Like, there are so many countless stories out there. That's, that's, I think most writers, that's what's really overwhelming. I mean, every time you work yeah. in, walk into a bookshop and you see that many books, like, I'm filled with joy and deep sadness that I'll never be able to read <laughs> all of them, you know? Yeah, I definitely had that because I worked in that bookshop for four years too and I know that mm. you worked in a bookshop for a really long time. Yeah. Um, and you do, you get really overwhelmed and, and you, yeah, I felt like almost depressed at, at times that I couldn't, e- I don't even have enough time to read the classics, you know? Yeah, 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 absolutely. Um, so I'll never be able to talk intellectually about all of those books. There must, there <laughs> must be a German word, maybe you'll know it. There must be a German word for that sad, sad happiness you feel 
when you walk into a bookshop. There shop. probably is. <laughs> you know, it's really funny. I've been um I've been translating. I've never really done this before, but um, someone has asked me to translate uh, some of their songs into from English into German. Um, and mm. it's been one of the hardest things I've ever done because wow. translating poetically is so difficult. Yeah, to get the rhythm um, and if there's rhyme yeah, and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, like he sort of wasn't expecting rhymes as much, but um, but even the rhythm because in German everything is ten syllables longer than anything else in English. You know, mm. it's so so long. Um, yeah. That's it's fascinating. Been, it's been really exciting. I remember um, interviewing poets and translators of poetry for the Sydney Writers Festival once and oh. I just thought, like, how do you even do that? And I asked them, you know, do you see your job more about tr- more as translating poems or writing poems inspired by the original language? Yeah. And they kind of and said what, that it was a com- I think a lot of them said that that it was kind of a combination of both because you can never yeah. language is so specific and I think people who don't like I I don't speak Cantonese very well but I understand it. And yeah. uh, and just like in in any language German included there'll never be a precise one there will never be a tra- precise translation for some concepts yeah. or some, some things the way that they're expressed because they're so based in not just language, but in culture and the way yeah. that that culture sees yeah. the world. But then beyond that, you've got the intricacies of the freaking language itself. Like that's right. It's a it's a fascinating kind of job. I wish you luck, Saya. It sounds oh, intense. <laughs> Look, I've got one one of them done, but I it's it was one of the hardest things. But you know, I think it was one of my friends said to me when I, I was um I was saying that this project had come up. She said. What like, when was the last time you did something truly challenging, you know? And and it, she's right. There's there's so little opportunities to do things where you actually need to sit down, concentrate really hard, and and you know something that you've never done before that you've had no real practice doing. Mm. And it and it was really rewarding. Like when I was listening back to my German version of it. I mean, it's a bit fucked up because Germans, <laughs> Germans is not a very beautiful language, you know. Yeah. Um, oh, I don't know. When I hear it, I'm the, it. It always has struck me as as a very clean sounding language, like very, very pure and precise, just like yeah. it's manufacturing. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. But it is funny. Like I think things that sound really beautiful and poetic in English, um, and then you know you you translate them into German and there's heaps of like, <laughs> like really like lots of these like, you know, throat and and glutteral sounds. Mm, but I love that moisture. Yeah. <laughs> so there's so many things I want to ask you and I know we have limited time. You've gone from writing um, articles and um, and feature stories and stuff for magazines to then putting out your own books. Um, can you tell me how, like, was it just a monster to approach your first book or did you sort of, were you working on it for a while and then decided to put those stories into a book or what What was the process? Uh, I don't know. I think in some ways, look, uh, the people often assume that I understood what I was doing with my career and had some sort of <laughs> very cool 10, 20-year plan or something. 
And uh, my boyfriend knows very clearly that I don't really have a plan beyond 24 hours. Like I literally have to look at my, <laughs> my digital diary to know what's happening the day after. I have some, yeah. hun- I ha- look, I have some hunches in terms of what I'd like to do in the next five years, but it's not like they're very clear. Um, yeah. And when it came to writing the book, I didn't know, or I didn't even have plans to write a book. God, and I know that how uh, kind of haughty and arrogant that sounds like, oh, it just landed in my lap. But it kind of did. <laughs> and <laughs> because I was, I was writing mainly for Frankie magazine, I wanted to make a career as a features journalist for the rest of my life. I felt like I was making progress. And then there was a call out for an anthology called Growing Up Asian in Australia that was being edited by the Australian writer Alice Pung, who I really admired and loved her work at that stage and still do. And I submitted two essays and I heard back from Alice and the publisher of that book, Chris Fike, and Chris asked me... um, like they really liked the essays and were cl- including both of them in that anthology. And Chris asked me if I had any more up my sleeve. And I, or, or I think he asked me if I had a book up my sleeve. And at that stage, I'd never thought of writing a book, but I was reading a lot of David Sedaris and David Sedaris, the American writer, he yeah. is an essayist and he smushes his essays together into book form. And I thought, well, maybe I can do that. I can write a lot of essays by theme, smush them together into book form and trick the public into believing it's an actual (laughs) book and they believed me, which is great. Um, And so that book became The Family Law and then it wasn't my idea for Family Law to become a TV show. That was um, Matchbox Pictures and Tony Ayres. Tony Ayres is just one of the greatest, uh, you know, filmmakers and TV makers um, in Australia and because Tony is also Chinese-Australian and because Tony's also gay, I think he saw, a, you know, a resonant story in my book and could see a TV show in it. And I, mm. I genuinely couldn't because the book structurally is a mess. There's no structure and TV is all <laughs> about a very clean arc and story. But yeah. the last, I guess, five years has been a really great education and an apprenticeship under people like Tony and the people who work on the show all of whom have been in TV yeah. much longer than I have. So it's never been uh, a plan to do all this stuff. It's just happily landed in my lap. But when it has, and the question has been, do you want to try this new thing or not? I'll always say yes. I, I, like I'm a nerd. I'm still that classic Chinese nerd from school. Like I want to learn, <laughs> I want to learn new skills. It's, it's interesting. Yeah, I'm, I'm the same. I think that it's interesting um, hearing that perspective uh, from a writer because I think I do exactly the same thing with music. When Most of the time when someone asks me, do I want to do something, I'll always say yes and then I'll figure out how to – then I'll go, oh, fuck, I don't know how to do that. Yeah, <laughs> but the challenge is the onus it. is on you. Like you, In that sense, you're kind of happily trapping yourself because you've got no choice yeah. but to do it, right? Yeah, you've already committed. Yeah. You've already written your invoice. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> You've already factored it into your weekly budget of groceries. Um, but I think that's a great way. It's a great attitude to have, you know, to just just say yes to things and then figure out how to do it. Um, you force yourself to learn. I think it's really valuable, um, and and you get a lot out of it. And it's cool to hear that you sort of have done that too. 
um, in a in a different art form. Well, I think it's the um, only way that you can kind of survive as a freelancer as well. One to one to diversify your skill set. Two, yeah. um, you know, like if you don't say yes to things, you you just die. If you're relying on <laughs> if you're relying on different projects for your income, and three, hopefully you'd be curious enough to 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 do that. I, I there's always yeah. a level of intimidation when you're asked to do something that you've never done before, but yeah. you kind of need to give yourself a pep talk to say, I am freaking the fuck out at the moment, but. <laughs> yeah. But you know what? I've got no choice and I'm, and I'm going to ask questions. I mean, that's a really important thing as well. Like you're never in something yeah. alone. Sometimes you need to be humble and say, how do I do this? Or do you have any advice? And certainly with the family law, there were just so many points when we were developing the show where I had to admit that I didn't quite know how to do it. And then yeah. people helped me or gave me tips and you know, you're not expected to nail it first go. Um, yeah, that's right. You you are kind of, you're kind of this person feeling your way in the dark, but I think any other artist, even artists who are a step ahead of you, do know what that's like and they will do their best to support you. Yeah. Unless they're shitheads. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think that's the biggest thing, to surround yourself with people that can support you and that, that you can... um you can rely on to help if, if you need it. Yeah, that, that, that sense of, no, that sense of community, um, whether it's musicians or writers, that collegiate sort of attitude that you're not in it alone. Absolutely. You need confidants. Yeah, so important. Yeah, confidants. Um, and I've been so happy to have you and Scott as confidants yeah. in my life. <laughs> it's been really lovely. Same said. Um, you mentioned David Sedaris before. <laughs> yeah. And he he writes a lot about his family. He writes mostly about his family. Um and and takes a lot of stories from real life and puts them in his essays and books. Um I always wonder when I'm reading David Sedaris' books if his family uh how they react to those stories because he you know he kind of shames them occasionally and and writes all the hilarious things that that they've they've done in their life and and stuff that they've said. Did you, how was your family's reaction to you writing the family law? Did you have any bits where they went, oh, I don't really want you to put that in or um, were they totally fine with it? Well, the funny thing is I got to actually interview David Sedaris shortly after I got my book deal and was kind of freaking out about how to go about <laughs> something like this. So I was, I was able to get him on the phone and he was happy to spend like an hour on the phone with me, poor guy. Wow, and, uh, and, and I just probed him and I said, <laughs> you know, without saying I need your advice personally, I was like, say there was someone else about to write a book, <laughs> hypothetically. Um, you, like you were saying, you know, you write about your family a lot. Uh, what are your rules of which lines you can and can't cross and how have they reacted? And yeah. um, his first bit of facetious advice was really funny. He said, oh, I just try to write about people who, do, who don't read very much. <laughs> so, <laughs> I think it's just so fucking That's funny. perfect. Um, but he, he but does, your family he, read a lot. Yeah, yeah no. but he also did have really good advice, like one of which was, you know, he never betrays a confidence. Like if one of his yeah. sisters had told him a story about her, her, her parents-in-law in and it yeah. was hilarious and they looked like buffoons, 
he would never write about that because the only way he could have known about that story is through her. Although he did add, yeah. I won't ever put that down in print, but I'll read the story out loud on my book tour in every other city except yeah. the one in which those people live. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, so he doesn't betray people's confidence. If he makes people look like jerks, he makes sure that he is also quite aware of making sure that he is portrayed as a jerk in a way that is yeah. fair because, I don't know, it, it's always a mean spirit if you show people as being silly without being aware of how silly you can be in that situation oh, absolutely. as well. Yeah. It's a jerk move as a writer and it's a jerk move as a human being. Um, yeah. And he does consult with his family. Like, he's always tried to make sure that he has a really strong relationship with his family. Like me, he, yeah. you know, he kind of comes from a migrant background. Um, his father's, his father's Greek-American. He's got a lot of siblings. He's one of six. I'm one of five. And, and he, like me, likes his family. So he yeah. always makes sure that he gets their approval. But I think that can be difficult sometimes as well, like in the case with David's sister Tiffany, um, yeah. she never wanted to be written about um, and he respected that. Then she did want to be written about and he got her approval and then when the story came out, the story that she'd already approved, her friends were scandalised and then she yeah. she had a big falling out with him because she suddenly realised through her friends that apparently the story wasn't um, flattering, which she thought it was initially. So you can't ever really anticipate those things, but in terms of yeah. me... Um, yeah, I did, I did show all my fam family members um, transcripts, well, well, the early manuscripts of the book that I was writing and they were kind of really happy about most of the stuff that I wrote. If there were discrepancies between how we remembered stories, I wrote it into the story. Like I would flag, my brother doesn't remember this happening or my mother doesn't remember, remember it yeah. this way. Just to make sure that the reader is aware that this is one person's account and truth is slippery. It's uh, it's only yeah. one person's perspective. Yeah, it's so interesting. You don't really need to think about that too much when you're writing a song because you can sort of disguise everything really well. I think when you, I imagine when you're writing a book, there's no there's no disguise. You just have to write it as it is, um, unless you want to make make something up. Yeah, and I'm not I'm not particularly good at writing fiction. But the interesting thing is now that we're writing the family law for screen as much as it's inspired by true life, it's not a based on a true story kind of thing. Like yeah. you're not watching the feature film Lion or anything like that. You are, you know, we've, we've fast forwarded it to present day, but the characters are the same age. We're not doing, uh, you know, a, a, even though all the characters have the same names, we're not doing a completely truthful account. We're kind of borrowing. So it's this weird hybrid and that's been kind of yeah. an interesting process as well. Yeah, I love the show. It is funny because it, it's obviously – I have a lot of love for the show because it's you and your family and I am obsessed with your family. <laughs> um, and, I, and, you know, it's really lovely to see these characters. But on the other hand, it's sort of – it's so different to your actual family. Like you all look very different, obviously. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah, it's so, it's so interesting. I, I'm really looking forward to the next chapters. Thanks, Serge. So are we. It means that we that we did it. <laughs> you did it. It's over. <laughs> when um when can we expect the next season? Um, look, the ads are already on SBS, so it shouldn't be too much longer. Um, we don't have an official air date, but you know, give it give it a few months, and it'll be on your screen soon enough. Awesome! Can't wait. Um, so my final question, Benjamin, 
is the question I ask everyone and it's it'll be a little bit different for you. So normally I ask what's your strangest show or strangest experience uh, on stage. But um, for you, I just want to say what's the, the weirdest thing that's happened to you because you're a writer, because you do what you do? Yeah, I thought about this for a while. There was this period, one of the magazines I write for at the moment uh, is Good Weekend where I have a weekly column, yeah. comes out with the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age. And... Um, there was a period where I was writing all these stories where I had to get naked. So one of the <laughs> first stories um, was my editor asked me to go to do naked yoga classes, which I just thought was this terrible idea because I was doing yoga normally by that stage and some of those poses are not flattering naked and some of them would just your genitals would just get in the way as well yeah. and the other thing is you have to get naked with strangers and as much as I'd done like Japanese yeah. onsen um and I'd been to a nudist beach for for a story as well yeah I was like oh man like this is just like down with dog is going to be really intense and Bad for the people behind um, you. Yeah. And then after I did that story, um, and I had to be photographed naked for it as well. So if you Google Benjamin Law naked, it probably comes up. Um, I think I've seen that actually because, you know, as you know, and I, I tell you this every time I go to Melbourne, my mum has cut out all of those articles and put <laughs> them on, she puts them on my bed as I arrive uh, to stay with my parents. So. Um, I think the last time I was there, I, I saw the, the naked yoga one. Oh, good God. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it it was kind sense. of lovely, though, arriving at mum and dad's and there was just a naked picture of you on my bed. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so sorry. That sounds like abuse, but, you know, I'm not going to judge your parents. Um, and, yeah, so there's just been a few instances like getting naked for yoga, also doing a gal – like because by that stage my editor knew that I was comfortable – doing stories in the nude when no one else was. And so then yeah. I had to do like a naked, uh, I had to be naked doing uh, an art gallery tour where all the patrons had to be naked as well. <laughs> and now because it's just a thing, there was like a naked dance performance at the Art Gallery of New South Wales where the audience had to be naked too. So I did that as well. I'm constantly getting my <laughs> dick out for my work. It's a tax deductible <laughs> expense. So whatever. Are you feeling more comfortable uh, now that you've being, done it being a few naked? times, yeah, yeah, strangers, to totally. Like when I was in Germany for the first time, um, me and my mates went to a day spa on our final day in Berlin. It was me, Scott, um, VJ Karana, Meg Washington, <laughs> two new friends that they'd made from England, and we were just like, <laughs> because you know, unlike Japan, in German spas it's co-ed, so it's like. Tits, yeah. bush, vag, cock, everything. <laughs> and like in my first 15 minutes, I found myself completely naked next to this very like big, heavy set German woman who was in her 70s, total tits right. out, just having this conversation in halting German and halting English. So great. Um, and it was very restful. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. So you're um? Do you think you'll do some more naked stories? Oh, uh, yeah, and anything to get my and look. I'm 34. I'm not gonna look like this forever. Why the hell not? <laughs> Honestly, I have no qualms about getting my cock out anymore. <laughs> well, that's a perfect way to end this chat. <laughs> I'm so I'm so grateful that you've that you've taken the time to talk to me. I know it's um, you know, it's it's a busy time and. 
I love talking oh. to you. I wish we could talk for another five hours just about our feelings. <laughs> Let's do that for the next time. <laughs> well, um, Special we'll have feelings to... podcast. Well, you know, I, there was a time in, in, when you lived in Brisbane where, um, where a bunch of us would have this standing breakfast date like once a month and we would just talk about all of our feelings and disgusting stories and I, I really miss it. I really, I really wish that you and Scott and Christy Chambers and you know, Claire and Ian and I could get together and talk about I know. all and go of to the Continental Cafe memories. and talk I about know. terrible nursing stories and our feelings. <laughs> I know. I miss it. <laughs> um, but this was great and thank you so much and I wish you well with all of your deadlines. Yeah. And I can't wait to see all of your projects on TV. Thanks so much, Serge. I can't wait to hear what you're doing next with music and work. All right, Ben. Thanks so much. Thanks so much, Serge.